Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Kevin Lindsay, host of Systems and Cybernetics here on the New Books Network. I recently had the opportunity to visit with the authors of a great new book called Design Journeys Through Complex Systems, Practice Tools for Systemic Design by Peter Jones and Crystal Van El. Dr. Peter Jones teaches in the Strategic Foresight and Innovation and Design for Health graduate programs. An experienced design researcher, Peter teaches systemic design courses and approaches to research and design science in healthcare, media, governance, social and policy design. He is a co-founder of the Systemic Design Association and its RSD Symposia series, now in its 10th year. Peter continues collaborations with a worldwide community of leading scholars in systems thinking and service system design, considered the systemic design field. Crystal Van El is a business partner at Nauman, a humanity-centered design agency based in Brussels. She's the lead author of the Service Design and Systemic Design Toolkits, and she teaches product service system design and systemic design at the University of Antwerp. Crystal is hooked on systemic design and believes that designers can and should contribute to systemic change by understanding how everything is interrelated and how products can be designed and deployed as leverages towards a better future. Grounded in systems theory, with references to Acoff, Meadows, Senge, and others, the book takes us on a journey comprising seven stages from framing, listening to, and understanding the system through envisioning desired futures, exploring the possibility space and planning change processes to finally fostering a transition. Design Journeys Through Complex Systems is a great read and practice guide for those looking for tools that integrate systems thinking and systems methods for human-centered design. It's a beautifully put together book, chock full of images and diagrams. Mine is dog-eared and full of sticky notes indicating all the standout tools I loved and intend to put to use. Now, before we go to the episode, I want to mention that the internet gods were not cooperating the day we recorded the interview. We had not one, but two interruptions. With the amazing help of, of the New Books Network's producers, we've done a little editing in order to bring this great conversation to you. As my teenager said to me when he dinged the car in his high school parking lot, it's hardly noticeable. Now, on to my conversation with Peter and Crystal. So hello, and um, thank you both for joining me. I want to extend a warm welcome to you, uh, to Systems and Cybernetics here on the New Books Network. And uh, I really want to first congratulate you on this book. It's fantastic. I'm really excited to be talking to you about it. And I actually have uh, several friends and colleagues. I've, um, I've been sharing the, uh, some of the, the, what I've been finding and discovering in the book uh, with them. Um, in particular, a friend of mine who's doing a very interesting PhD at the moment. And uh, she, she's ordered it. She's excited to receive her own copy, but she imagines she'll probably listen to this conversation with you first. So very excited to be talking to you. I'd like to start our conversation the way we do most of our um, conversations here on on this podcast, which is to hear a little bit about from uh, from you both um, about your relationship with systems thinking. Systems thinking definitely is um, a, a, a big theme that, that comes across to me in the book, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, but I'd love to hear from, from both of you uh, about the influence that systems thinking and maybe particular systems thinkers have had on you and, and the work that, 
that you do in your life and, and careers. And um, Crystal, why don't we start with you? Okay, with pleasure. Well, I discovered systems thinking 10 years ago. I was asked at the University of Antwerp to help to teach a, a course which is called Product Service Systems. And I already had a methodology, made a methodology then for service design. I knew the methodology from product design, and so I started to merge it, but I couldn't find anything about systems. And so I went on the internet, I discovered that this amazing, amazing library of papers of systems thinkers. And the first two years, I couldn't figure it out. I was like, this is all over the place. I don't understand it. How does this link together? What can you do with this? And that's how basically I started to think about uh, how can can I turn this into a grammar, into a methodology, into something practi practical. And I must say, when I then started to do this, I was like very angry on myself that I never discussed, discovered this before. Because it changed so much the way of my way of thinking and my way of doing my practice and my teaching. So that's my story. Got it. Great. That's a that's a that's a great story. I think that that happens to many of us. Oh, have I not heard about this before? And how has it not played a role in my life and my, my work up until now? I know I had a, a kind of similar moment, but probably much more recently than than you did. Peter, how about you? Uh, my experience is, is perhaps the opposite, and maybe we're really complementary, and that's why we were good writing partners, and we're able to kind of bring our minds together to create something that really resonated with design and, and the systemic design approach from systems. Uh, I, was a, I was trained as a systems thinker uh, long before I really developed a design practice. So even in high school, I was reading uh, what's, what's considered system psychology. And I became my training, um, my three degrees are in, are in different psychological disciplines, um, cognitive, cognitive human factors, psychology, organizational, um, organizational practices uh, applied to innovation, my PhD, so, which is design and innovation management. Uh, and so the, my, probably my first exposure to, to systems theory would have been in high school with R.D. Lang's uh, anti-psychiatry, as it was called. That led me to, you know, um, I had several mentors as an undergraduate. Um, uh, people like uh, Marshall Spangler introduced me to Bertolanffy and brought me in as an undergraduate to talk to his college classes. And I didn't know what I was talking about yet, but I just was like thrown into it with a kind of community at the time. This would have been in the early 1980s. And so as I went further in, in cognitive psychology and human factors, so much of the, of the development of, of human factors and its application to design decisions uh, was, was influenced by, by systems theory, systems approaches to large-scale um, uh, socio-technical systems. And so uh, in my, my PhD, um, I was mentored by uh, Alexander Aleko Christakis, who I, who I still uh, uh, collaborate and work with, and so learned his, his approach to uh, systems dialogue, dialogic design. But by then I'd been, you know, I had been learning 
I had developed a design practice through work since, um, since the late 1980s. And so it became more integrated really from that period on. But I was still always really led by my training in, in, in psychology and social science disciplines and the application of, of those theories to, to practical design processes in, in, in doing design work. So, so that's why I'm the writer and not the visual designer in the book. <laughs> More on that later, uh, because it's an absolutely beautiful book um, that has to be visually appreciated. So we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that as well. One of the assertions you make as you open the book is that designers, social innovators, and business leaders are now called to address transformational challenges for which we have no relevant academic or practice training. And just even hearing uh, both of you talk about your early exposure to systems thinking and uh, Crystal, yours is more recent, but nonetheless impactful. I'd love you to just talk about this particular challenge, um, the the challenge of of, um, systemic challenges and these transformational challenges. And and there's a litany of them we could we could we could go through here. But, but just talk to, and uh, you know, I'll let either one of you jump in or both, however you want to do it. Um, just speak to this, this, um, this issue of how maybe we're, we're not really prepared uh, to be tackling these, these, these challenges and how, how maybe you've got an approach here that, that could start to address it. it everybody understands now, there is, it's, it's a good time for systemic design, of course, because we have all these disasters happening. Crises, uh, pandemics, wars. So people are waking up. That's for sure. People are like grasping that it's time that they should change the system, but they don't know how. And it seems for most of the people that it's like undoable on an individual level or at an organizational level. But still, people are trying, and I'm trying to to more and more look for other ways of doing things and are getting more open to it, especially from the governments now. In Belgium, uh, so both the, the regional, the federal and the European governments are now open to systemic design and calling more and more upon us to help them out and to find basically their own methodology and their own way of working. Because of course, in the book you have a, a, a lot of tools and templates and techniques, but that's not enough. You have to make it your own. Is that an answer? Yeah, I, I absolutely. I, I, you know, you, um, you reference messes in the book, of course, and uh, and I, I think that that's kind of what you're speaking to now. Some of these these big messes that are undeniably systemically connected. Um, and the unraveling of these these messes uh, is is kind of key to beginning to address them. I think you've got um, a lot of tools that begin to look at you know whether it's it's understanding the system, listening to the system, and, and so on, which I want to get into, of course, in in, in detail. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was a, a very insightful answer, Crystal. What do you think, Peter? Oh, sure. We're, we're working with many different audiences now. Um, we're, 
10 years ago uh, when we were developing some of the early practices in systemic design, having conferences that were much smaller and looking for design approaches to these, these you know, complex contexts, uh, there weren't as many audiences yet. We were starting to develop different like policy labs, especially uh, across Canada. That became, that became really something of a trend um, from, from maybe five to eight years ago, and, that, that, and that's still continuing. And, and the policy labs have incorporated you know, different uh, strategies for um, what could be called systemic design. Some have been explicitly systemic design framed and others more strategic foresight, um, design thinking, but they're drawing on some of the same bases and trying to trying to bring uh, different flavors and tools of these practices into audiences where you could have more you could have a broader spread and broader understanding of uh, of working um, you know working with these practices. Again, as Crystal had suggested, she is getting. Uh, finding more and more public sector work and public sector decision-making is really not known for dealing with high degrees of ambiguity and, and, and decision-making in, in a very democratic way, which is something that, that design approaches are very good at. So the integration of this kind of democratic, collaborative, design-led approach while taking into account the, at least the you know the the human systems theories of, of systems systems approaches. You know this is an uh, integration that was, was was probably foreign to a lot of public sector just a few years ago. So that and it still is going to be. I mean, people come and go, and you have a lot of different decision makers coming and going. That's not you know. So I think a big part of uh, you know our big audience for for the book will be. Um, um, different, uh, different uh, design teams, you could say collaborative teams that are, are um, in practice designing solutions for complex situations for which they're grappling with now the intersections of, of multiple situations, their own. Um, so it could be, as we're seeing in, in municipalities work here in Canada a lot, it's, um, I'm, I'm working with research on dealing with uh, uh, climate change action planning in municipalities with their leadership processes, with changing changes in public engagement for other complex issues such as housing affordability and, and social justice issues, all interrelated. And so you can't just deal with that mix of issues in a, in a linear way. And, and you can't just, you can't come to it with different silos and to kind of argue it out. They have to be if they're going to be addressed together as a, you know, in a systemic approach, we found it's, uh, you know, by, by using design tools that people can collaborate with, we have an entry point for, for people to develop an understanding together at the different levels of decision-making and different levels of knowledge and contribution. So it can help to resolve some of those typical imbalances when you don't have the dominance of certain experts in the room, and we don't come in. We come in as experts, I guess, as experts in the process, but not as content experts or experts in their domains of work. So we can help advise, and we hope book helps advise in the in 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 the co-creation of these 
uh, collaborative practices for for finding solutions, finding, well, not solutions to problems so much, but finding interventions, resolutions. We have to be careful with the language because it's not a problem-solving approach. And that's one of the main things we work with. But this, you know, uh, creating much better strategic approaches to resolving the complexity that, 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 that these different groups, stakeholder groups are mm. finding. Very interesting. I, uh, I want to just unpack that a little bit. Um, I am unaware myself of the extent to which design, the concept of design is, is understood or appreciated in these kinds of contexts. Um, to, to me, I, I, I don't know if this is like the, you know, a common thing, um, but I guess my question is, is this idea of, of design and, of just, and designers and a, a designerly approach um, maybe not new, but is it only now being maybe better understood as a role and a function and in these kinds of um, settings that you describe? Yeah, uh, well, for me, design has always been about sense making. And unfortunately, a long time, this sense-making had to do too much of, with sense-making for the user and sense-making for the company and didn't look broader at sense-making for the whole of society and, and for the planet. And that's something that is changing now. This mindset is changing and designers are more and more aware that basically what they are doing is causing a lot of harm. Not always, but there are a lot of side effects that are really not good. If you look at uh, disruptive services like Airbnb, that's not... In the beginning, this was really nice, but now that they scaled up, they are disrupting the cities, basically. And so, yeah, the design community is getting aware of that, but always there has been this spirit in the designers to want to create impact in the world. There was always the intention. And I hope with uh, systemic design that we can really make this happen. Mm. I'm, I'm reminded of um, the only other time I've interviewed co-authors um, on this podcast was maybe almost two years ago, I interviewed Ray Eisen and Ed Straw on um their their book and uh we were talking about uh systemic sensibility and just kind of possessing that that was kind of key to like any of this is like okay if if you don't understand all the ins and outs of, of systems theory and practice and whatever that's okay but start by developing and having in this case it was um you know we we're talking about governance and that that establishing and really encouraging a systemic sensibility it sort of seems like what you're saying like in this in this context of sense making that it's this design sensibility is really a sense making sensibility that you know that has to underlie kind of all of our work I think that's a good way to put it I mean we discuss that in the book and we talk uh, we present the different types of engagement uh, or workshopping processes, which in essence are different 
styles of engagement for the different for different sets of tools for the for the stages. In other, so we've created opportunities for sense making from the research, sense making from the participants in the system, as we call it, as the people that are in the front line, say, of a of a healthcare system. We wouldn't normally just get a group of policymakers together in a room and then talk about the people in the system without them there. This is there is really a, a sense in which the sense making has to be done with people who are subject to and at risk in the system itself that uh, that understand, um, you know, the, the the kind of issues that they're they're dealing with on a day to day basis. So there's that level of of sense making from the kind of field research that we do in li- that we advocate in listening to the system. Uh, this is a typical process in uh, you know in any in any design methodology, whether it's service design or user experience. In fact, in our in the book we have, um, which is now pretty well known, a model of the four um, design domains from from. Uh, essentially designed of artifacts to products and services to uh, to organizations including social innovation which is done through organizations as well and so their impact and then systemic design we consider at the level of often called transformation either multi-stakeholder multi-organizational sometimes industry-based and so, so sense making is 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 very. And this is a, and this is a um, an idea developed by uh, Gary Van Patter and myself over going back to early two thousands. Even is that is that the design three and four point uh, designing with and for organizations and multi organizational multi stakeholder contexts involves much more sense making than designing in the sense of creating brands, artifacts, you know, tools, you know, and, and, and outcomes that are, that are interactive and tangible. So design of products and services or, you know, as complex as that may be, it is still very well understood in terms of, of sense making. Um, there, you know, there may be, so uh, in, in terms of how we would, um, how we would think of sense making, though, is it a series of uh, interactions with the di- with the audience with the different audiences, and t- and take in taking them from the levels of their understanding and taking them through um, not necessarily all seven stages that are in the book, but through appropriate you know engagements that are available um, and av- available to their understanding, available to their ability to participate uh, in that. And- so I would like to add something to the sense-making ideas that Peter talked about. I think there is also this idea of the sense-making in design on a, on a meta-level, on a much bigger level. I mean, all design should be aiming for sense-making, and then I mean sense-making in life, sense-making of life. So basically, that's what I would like to add yeah, I, I think that's that's really interesting. You know, when when you um, oh, I'm just trying to also remember right now. Um, did you call it strange making? So rather than differencing, yeah. So so printing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. 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 Strange making is essentially the design practice of developing an artifact, um, a uh, consider a, a website, a product, so it's distinctive, that stands out, it reflects and represents the brand. So it's actually making things that are familiar, strange, so that they appeal to the market. And so it's so some so any type of new product. Um, will become normalized after a while. And so there's this kind of constant pressure in the marketing and, you know, design's influence in, in consumerism is this kind of continuous creation of, of fashions and trends that create what's, what's strange enough to be distinctive and to draw a new market forward. And so the sense-making, I mean, so that's essentially what, a big part of what strange making is and why it's so linked to traditional design practices and why and designers are trained are very good at this in, in creating these distinct distinctive identities. But in sense making, we aren't interested in creating something. I mean, there may be a narrative at some point, which needs to be distinctive and stand out. We can draw on traditional design capabilities to construct, you know, all the, you know, kind of the rollout of a, of a campaign or of a system change program or something. But we're working with, with, with groups of people or multiple stakeholders that may have competing interests that may be um, working, you know, within an industry, like I'm working with sustainable seafood um, group, uh, industry group, and they are, you know, people in NGOs and certification and with, you know, with with, with large uh, retail companies that that want to sell fish and the, the the fisheries themselves, you know, all these representatives may have competing interests in the sense making between them. They are the experts in their own domains. They have to reach agreement and understanding and have some understanding about you know the the trade offs of of these complex situations. And it's not about coming up with something that's going to be cool and strange that everyone agrees with, which is maybe what designers would do once you, you know, you've hired them within a company, but with the kind of roles that we're playing in systemic design, it is, it is about working with those stakeholders to con in these co-creation practices. And that's why there's such a range of tools that, you know, we wouldn't ever use them all, but we, some of them are, are very common. We use them quite often. The actors map, um, the the context mapping, uh, causal loop diagramming, or called story loops, uh, synthesis maps. Um, you know these kind of visual narratives. Uh, intervent. A lot of these tools we use quite frequently, and we use the other ones as power tools, or use them as as planned and as needed. And so that's what we're trying to train people in in in, in these in processes of of multi method design for sense making. With mix, with very mixed sometimes, very mixed audiences. Mm, interesting. Um, I, I don't want to take us down a rat hole, but I did have a reaction to this whole sense making that the and and strange making um, piece, and I kind of wondered if, in the same way you were talking about strange making in maybe you know a website or the launch of a new product, that kind of thing, if it has a role in in transformation or systemic change making. And I think about what comes to mind is kind of like activism or like things like Extinction Rebellion and actually using a, a process of, you know, 
maybe maybe sense making brings us into alignment, but maybe kind of emphasizing or demonstrating the misalignment needs to be part of a process. And maybe that, that's how, that's I was kind of struck by strange making in, in that regard. Does, does it play a role in, in that kind of way? Crystal, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, there is this this notion in the in systemic design of attractors, of places, activities, products, services that you construct to get people's attention to a cause. And in that sense, it, it could be it could be linked with that. Yeah, and in terms of activism, I mean, I think we're we're trying to get kind of upstream of where the activism actually happens, so that so that the the real you know, often activism is is meant to get like public attention, but what is their intent to draw further after they get the public attention? I mean, what is the real policy goal? And and we're really looking at with these design tools to, I mean, you could call it. Up, going upstream to where better interventions could be defined, so that so that you could you know smartly use the uh, you know available available capabilities to to any program to make to make better interventions sooner that will have um, th- that will that that could have real outcomes. So we're looking really at defining much better policies that. And the activism should change around, you know, those the configuration of, of much much better proposals and solutions, which we think, you know, a lot in a lot of cases are still not understood until the system is understood. So it's yeah. So it's not just let's let's do something, which activism often is, because you know I work with the peace movement. Um, I mean, it's, it's in fact Remembrance Day today. I'm going to be going to an event down at Young Donda Square at noon today. And, and and it's on peace poppies. We make white peace poppies. And those are a kind of strange making because everybody else is wearing red poppies. And we handmade white peace poppies. We're going to be handing them out. They're going to be singing songs. And this kind of thing may have a kind of strange making intervention. It will create some awareness. But we have a story that goes with it, too. We have... We're, it's not a big intervention, but it is it is a type of intervention. What is also what is also super important is that, especially for policymakers, is that they realize that one intervention is not enough. There should be a mix of interventions, and they should all be linked together. They should work together, and that's in Belgium always. If you look at interventions from policymakers, it's always looking at one intervention specifically, and so it doesn't work, of course. <laughs> yeah, and this is really important with like energy transitions, which of course is is a major program area um, across many. I mean, it's mostly a national program within within Holland, Germany, and in Belgium. They have their own kind of national programs for energy transition, but they're doing it differently, and they, you know, I, you know, I, I I know something about the different. Um, transition methodologies. In fact, we draw on kind of some of the core methods or theories that when we talk about the multi-level perspective, the Frank Gales uh, MLP, uh, and we and we draw on MLP in several of our tools in, um, in, in context mapping and in transition by design and in several of the tools. So we continue to draw that forward across the seven stages. 
and and yet coming up with multiple interventions that work together as well as alternatives and fallbacks uh, different theories of change you might be familiar with you know theory of change concept Kevin and we're and and, and we introduce different tools in these stages so that that the right tool can be, which in each tool, I think, is a world in it, into its, in and of itself. I mean, if you, if you look at the, you know, the, the theory and background and the development of, of the, you know, the author's work behind the, the, the tools that we represent, like the iterative inquiry from Jamshid Garajadagi, you know, he's got a whole book that's kind of based on that. His systems thinking book starts with, this iterative inquiry approach, and there's never been a nice like visual tool for it. So we aren't just trying to, um, I mean, so our purpose in the tool is to help with the sense-making process, not to reduce the complexity of these formidable processes and these deep thinking methodologies that, you know, we're, that we really appreciate. We're trying to bring them into more everyday practice and hope that what we call the tourists as new learners as well as explorers who are the kind of experts already know a lot of these tools can use these now effectively. They can learn them and select the ones that work for their, for their own stakeholders. And they can become conveners of their own engagements using these tools and to learn more and more of the depth of the practice, which we can't fit all that into a 240 page book, which is probably good that we were limited by the publisher to less than 250 pages because uh, I like to talk a lot and write, write my writing is lengthy. So uh, Crystal's uh, approach to constraint and, and, um, and, and this kind of uh, efficient description has been a good balance, I'd say. And, and coming up with a it's book just that's the, just, just the right, the right length. length. And, and <laughs> I, uh, I think it's a very approachable book. I think the way that it is set up is um, really, really uh, useful um, I'd love to just go into talking about the book more specifically now. And I think it's important to note that before the book came the toolkit, right? So everything we see in the book is kind of part of a, you know, a, a living toolkit that, 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 uh, that people have been able to use and, 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 and practice with. Um, and then you, you know, you brought it together, you've assembled it in, in, in this, in this book. Have I, I that's accurate? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, that's correct. The toolkit, uh, I started to develop it in 2000, but like 2015, then I, 2015, I went to Toronto to, uh, present it at the RSD conference where Peter was. And then already then Peter got very interested. And then one year later, when we were at, in Oslo, I had worked more on it. And that's where then Peter uh, proposed to collaborate on it. And that's what we did. And so I've been first testing it with my students in Antwerp, then with uh, the best clients in, in my practice. So from 2015 on, there were already some clients who said, okay, we want to test this. Even if it fails, it's okay, but it looks interesting. And since then, yeah, it's becoming mature. We've done, done lots of projects with it. And also Peter has been using it a lot in uh, with his students and uh, with design projects. 
So yes, you can say that they've been tested, they've been they are matured, and yeah, we're still working on oracles. <laughs> But I really appreciate that you brought it all together in this one 250-page book because like, what a what a great resource and and probably I'm guessing definitely the, the reach of this work is going to be you know obviously much much extended. Um, but I let and you have referred to these these stages uh, a little bit, and I think we kind of owe the listeners some explanation of of the of the stages of the um, of the design journey. Uh, so I, you know, it, it probably doesn't make sense to go into all of them in in detail. We want people to to go out and buy the book and and find ways to, but it would be worth it. If to spend a little bit of time just to give us a, maybe a, a, a tour to use the, the metaphor a little bit um, of, of, of these seven stages and just kind of how, how maybe the thought behind them. And so I don't know how between the two of you, you want to do that. Um, and then there may be a couple of areas we can dive into a little more deeply. Um, I think I've got some questions that that came up as I was going through some of these these areas, and um, and then of course um, again I, I sort of feel like um, describing this book is a little bit like um, if I were to go to a museum and see this amazing painting and then pull out a phone and just talk about it to a friend rather than showing it to them with my video on my phone because. It is very visual and has to be experienced and 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 seen in order for a person to be able to uh, imagine how to use these tools in in their in their work. So I want to say that. So listeners, you you really need to um, you need to get the book so that you can see what we're talking about. <laughs> but I think that it would be um, useful if you could just walk us through those, those seven stages. I don't mind spending, you know, quite a bit of time on, on that, if that's okay with you. Shall I start? And then Peter can, uh, add on this. So basically at the core of the whole methodology is the idealized future. So this is based on the ideas of Russell Eckhoff. So that's where do we want to get? What is our dream? And so the first three stages, which is framing, listening, and understanding, is to really find out how do we get into this mess? How do we get here? What is hap What happened historically? What's happening in the system? What is causing this? What are the tensions in the system? What are the dynamics that are leading to the issues we have today? And the three other stages, which is about exploring, planning, and transition, is how do we get out of this mess? How do we get to this desired future? So that's really the, the, the basic of, of the whole methodology. And of course, it's not that linear as it seems, because sometimes you have to go back. So would you say that there are any stages that are more important than others or that seem to be lacking more than others in in current approaches you know we've talked a little bit little bit about where systems thinking doesn't work and when when different stakeholders aren't involved and and uh, some of the, the failings of of kind of one-off interventions and and that kind of thing um so you know where is it 
in this process that is maybe most most vulnerable or or organizations maybe go oh that's a throwaway stage we don't really need to worry about that well i don't think we decide that way with our uh with our the stakeholders we're working with um we're very often limited to the stages that we can address and the tools that are appropriate based on their capacity their time frame for decision making the goals that they have, whether they're near, even if they're long-term goals, we may have to accomplish a, a subset of, of, uh, of design work so that they can kind of make a case and come back and do a, a longer engagement later uh, for it. So it's so the seven stages are not meant to be linear, and that's part of the way that we address it as a journey process, and that the des- the design journeys, if, if if you will, is a is a DIY tour guide that the tourist or explorer can define for themselves based on when they, they kind of learn the methodology and learn enough of the tools and can adapt it um, to you know to the to the groups to the the clients or stakeholders they're working with. So it. I see it as, as also being cyclic, but if we had to introduce really cycles into the journeys as well, and to make that really more clear, it, it could get more complicated, not complex, but like with too many steps and too many different kind of components to remember. So I, I think with the seven stages, I see this as, as a type of requisite variety to, to the to the questions which are actually in the book, the types of questions that ha- that call to be answered um, through through any type of complete engagement that would address everything from the framing of a complex situation and the framing with a group so that they can make sense of the boundaries of the system, the, the subsystems, the interactions within framing the system, the approaches to learn about that system in, 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 the, in the participants as the, the requisite variety of the people and the other agents and actants within the system that we do in listening and then in understanding the system to map it out and understand the current system in a way that everyone can agree to. And those stages are pretty well defined actually in, in, in most systems methodologies. They may call them something else. They may call framing the system, as, as we distinguish, is, is boundary judgment. And, and listening to the system could be, you know, sense-making systems research. And, under, and, and then you've got different forms of system mapping for mapping out a current system. So that much is at least necessary. It's requisite. This is part of requisite variety, though. Every one of these stages will have necessity for the complete life cycle that we would need to develop a complete kind of program to implementation. And I think in most design approaches, what's actually missing isn't so much stages one, two, and three, and even understanding the system or envisioning desired futures, which is very much a design process. But it's what's missing is planning the change process and, for, and the fostering the transition stages six and seven. Most design processes really leave their stakeholders hanging with now it's now we've 
we've created a beautiful report and a proposal. We've got prototypes. We did all this work together. Now you go implement it. But we recognize that that is also a creative space that really has to be also developed through sense-making, planning, what we call meta-planning, which is actually, um, you know, which actually a lot of this process is. We could call it a meta-planning process for complex uh, complex decision and uh, processes and, and system change programs. So I think all of the seven stages are necessary. We often can't do them all. They're necessary because of the requisite variety to a complete process. I'll say one more thing that other approaches that are similar to systemic design. Um, so I'd mentioned um, Banning Banerjee's change lab process has seven stages. There are a number that have been presented at RSD that are distinctive processes developed in research that didn't use our process. And they tend to have very similar ideas in the seven. They have seven stages like, like Banny's does. And they have this kind of development toward an understanding and envisioning and then, you know, moving through appropriate interventions, testing the interventions and and developing an approach to change, like a theory of change or a transition plan. So these are, these are, I'm not, they're not canonical, but I'm seeing a lot, I'm seeing more in, in, in systems approaches, you know, you can't do this in three stages and yet they don't have to be stages, but I think that that also helps, you know, the stakeholders understand what the questions are in each, in each period of co-creation. That is what we're dealing with, what our issues are, what questions we're asking, how we're working together, how we're going to collaborate. It's different in each stage. Sure. And I can see um, an organization kind of going, oh, I can really identify with with this, like where we're at in our maturity and in terms of what we're trying to do. So this stage kind of makes sense for us and where a lot of our focus needs to be. But I, I, I will also say I, I love the the chart that shows up right at the very end of the book where I think the point that you're making around the DIY is really um, emphasized by, by this, this chart where you basically show the 30 tools that comprise the, the, the stages and the relationship between these different tools and how I'm guessing how they might be used, you know, in a, in a way that makes sense for a given organization that, that it doesn't have to be, this linear process. It doesn't have to be those tools in that stage necessarily. That's how I interpreted that, that, that this chart. You say that's, is that how I'm supposed to interpret it? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. That it's like, like to make the statement at the end of the book, like guys, this process is not so linear as it looks. <laughs> and you have it really make it your own, depending on the project, depending on your uh, experience. So please, please do. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 amazing. In this last chapter, which um, I, I think it's called um, "Returning Home," the return home, and uh, I really appreciated this because you 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 really I think brought it home for me, uh, just in terms of how to reconcile um, a, a lot of what um, what design journeys are relative to systems thinking and and the the importance of of, of those origins. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I really liked, uh, you know, some of the, 
um, you know, some of the questions, you know, you, you, you pose this question, are we designing systems and does that question really matter? And, and, you know, harkens back to a lot of systems thinking and, and even just like what, what is a system and, and the language that we, that we use uh, and how important that is. Um, I also really appreciate that you give us some nice, solid ways of sort of understanding this intersection and how to how to think about um, design journeys as integrating systems thinking and systems methods for human-centered design in complex socio-technical and multi-stakeholder systems. Um, this was this is a really nice kind of recap and really kind of helped me. Um, understand kind of what 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 you're trying to do and, and what the book uh, you know how the book can be so helpful. I want to just you know as we wrap up here, um, give you the opportunity to you know you you've you've had the book's been out for a little while now and and you've been talking to people uh, you've been hearing the reactions uh, from people who've read it and and questions I'm sure from people who are considering reading it. Um, what is the question that that I didn't ask here today? And, uh, you know, what what is it that you'd really like like people to know ab about the book and about about this work? Um, and uh, yeah, I'll just get give you the, the last um, the last words here uh, in this episode. I'll start with you, Crystal. Well, the question you didn't ask is what's next mm. or what is uh, what is missing in the book? And one of the things that is definitely missing in the book, and I'm working on it already, is about how do you facilitate a systemic design process? How do you do this? Because it, it needs much more than just being able to understand and to convey the tools. You also need to have this ability to create a real deep dialogue with your group. You need to have this ability to make people feel safe not afraid for change. You have to learn how to work with tensions. There will always be tensions anyway. And how to put those tensions into your advantage, into the advantage of the group to learn from them. Because basically, tensions means that there is kind of a very weak spot, very uh, something something happening there. So there is a lot to do with, with this. How do you bring this group to the next stage? How do you bring them into action? How do you, you make them really motivated to change? And then uh, another question that I have is, um, how can you better foresee unintended consequences of what you are doing? How can you do this? You can do this in different ways, but I mean, I would like to elaborate on this so that you avoid that your system interventions are making it, it worse or are leading to something else. And then an, uh, another thing that for me, for well, for us, is missing is how can you get it to a higher level and uh, like make make sure that systemic design also lead to spirituality in 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 life in the world. And with spirituality, I mean the kind of feeling that you are connected, connected to others, connected to communities, to connected to nature, connected to the planet. Mm. And so these are like ways to go for the future. Mm. Thank you. Peter. Yeah, I, I just uh, add to what Crystal was saying that uh, since we completed the book, 
uh, yeah, we've been we've actually been actively exploring in our own ways, in our own discussions, um, you know, what's next in the practice, not necessarily, you know, necessitating another book, um, but, you know, because facilitation in particular, which is something I, I, I spend time, um, uh, you know, in training our students in strategic foresight and innovation and design for health design programs I teach in. It's, it's not easy to learn and you have to learn it in an embodied way and you can't pick it up from a book. And it would be the same for the kind of inner practices as well. Yet there is a lot to be said on the complementary side of the system's approach. So from, so if we consider, if you, if you look at other um, broad kind of structural models like integral theory or spiral dynamics, you have inner and outer external you know, you'd be dealing with external systems like we actually are dealing with here. We talk about requisite variety. It's the variety of participants in a system that we care about, but that our stakeholders are actually in and working with. But but there's a reflexivity and an and inner response to the system or a reason we care, uh, outcomes that will be transformative for individuals and for our culture and for society in ways that aren't defined as outcomes in the theory of change. We don't want them to just be unexpected or emergent. You know, there is a type of depth practice um, that, you know, that uh, that will take a little time to develop because this isn't something that comes together as a methodology. Uh, it has to come, come more from our experience and learning and how other people have used it and, and the responses to it and everything. And I, and I think this is, and I'd like to bridge from this to the other thing you didn't ask about, which is how is this, how is design journeys being received by the systems community? Mm. And I'm not sure yet. You're actually one of the first kind of bridges to the mainstream systems community that's taken a real interest in it, which is why I'm really, you know, delighted to have, you know, ha- have you ask us because systemic design tends to be very design led. It has... It has a, a really strong take up among designers and among design thinking and policymaking and these other areas where they're interested in systems approaches, but they want to use design um, from the kind of systems and cybernetics um, um, school of thought. They, it may be that, you know, that for one thing, they have, uh, they have other tools that may very often methodologies that are very commit that they may be very committed to. I mean, that's how I learned in dialogic design. You learn, I, you actually kind of study an apprentice for quite some time, even before you're able to facilitate, you know, it is, I mean, years and it's, you know, years of development and, and, and learning with an, you know, with a community of practice in a lot of these systems practices. So, you know, one of the impressions I can see, and I and I have this impression with other books I've seen that are compendia of different tools, as if, you know, you see a lot of other toolkits have picked up on, for example, the panarchy cycle, the adaptive cycle, which we've also addressed and made, you know, representations of, or different system mapping approaches that the, and I, I like the tools that we've developed for Donnell Meadows, 12 places to intervene, mm-hmm. you know, or, but these, these represent 
deep reflexive practices and we have the the pointers to them. We've learned in them some more deeply than others. We've developed some tools that are completely new that that we ourselves are not yet deeply experienced in because we developed them for the book, the ecosystem governance tool and, you know, and the, and the different change strategy tools. A lot of those, some of those were actually quite net, they were net new. But the, this, this, what I'd like to, I guess, say to the, with respect to the systems community is that each one of these tools is what's called an eigenform. It is a fractal of a whole practice that is integrated into a design approach where it can be used in a more democratic and co-creative way and people can learn on their own pace to get depth in that. And as an, as an eigenform, it can have its own kind of role. That is, a, a, an eigenform is a second-order cybernetic principle of, of a reflexive practice. So it's, um, so it's a, in, in, if we don't want to like limit it to a tool, then as a, you know, there's the, the, the self, so we create a tool that can be used by re in reflection by a group of people that are using it. And in that self-reflection as a group, they're in a second order cybernetic process. That is, they've got a direct outcome. They're using the tool for it's first order. They're making decisions about that and they're or self-organizing to make it work in an effective way. That's they're forming that with that tool, with this eigenform. And we wouldn't use that word in the book. I mean, unless we had 500 pages, maybe. But there are ways, but, uh, you know, I just want to sit, throw, you know, a few things out there that we have hints throughout the book that there, there's a lot more you can do with this and, and, and a lot further you could go. And we don't mean to limit it in, in you know, it's limited by page count but not by inherent depth, we think. And I think there's a lot to learn in terms of the whole field of second order cybernetics and design, which is a, a kind of a different practice area that I'm, I'm waiting to hear more from on their use and participation, you know, their use of these, these kinds of tools and, and perhaps our toolkit um, in their practices. Mm. Thank you for that. I think that does come through and will be uh familiar to listeners of, of, of this, regular listeners of this this channel who are into systems and cybernetics will, will probably appreciate that. It, it, it will come through um, in, in many of the tools that you describe. So I want to thank you both, Peter and Crystal, for being here with me today on, on the New Books Network. Uh, great conversation. It's a very exciting book. And uh, again, congratulations um, on the book. So thank you so much, first of all, for being here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. You're most welcome. Um, I hope we get to do this again. So this is Kevin Lindsay. You've been listening to my conversation with Peter Jones and Crystal Van El, authors of Design Journeys Through Complex Systems, Practice Tools for Systems Design, published by BIS 2022. Bye for now.